Hello everybody and welcome back to The Therapy Files. We are of course here together in person for the second time, third, third time since Covid, which is fantastic. Are you forgetting cults, Craig? Of course! Of course. How could I forget cults? This is the cult of The Therapy Files. Oh, I know, I know. Or the organised crime of The Therapy Files. <laughs> Shh! Don't tell them what we get up to outside the well, podcast. I suppose cults could be organised crime, and technically organised crime could be cults, so we could we'd get the whole, whole mashup back. Anyway, I am here, always, with my dearest friend, Callum. Hello, everyone. How are you today? I'm blooming, thank you. Very, very well. Uh, just come back from a wonderful Halloween party that we threw for some children last night and my daughter, so that was, that was entertaining. Question. But what did your daughter dress up as? She didn't actually, she wasn't very well, so, okay. so I would actually just ferrying her around for a while. Uh, but she will be dressing tomorrow as a witch. Last year she was a bat, i.e. with COVID. Amazing. This year she's, uh, this year she's a witch. So. How fabulous. How fabulous. Anyway, so today you have requested that I do all the talking. I have indeed. Basically. I, I have indeed. And before we forget, we are of course always sponsored by Swan Shop. The most famous purveyors of kitchen and units alike. Beautiful. Was it? Yeah, it rolls all the time beautifully. Hi, Glenn. And Swanshaw are all inclusive. So this is why we have to understand why we're doing this next episode. Indeed. And lucky me, it's about ableism and my experiences of it. It certainly is. And it is the first of a quartet of episodes, as far as I'm aware. I think we're going to do four. It looks that way. I mean, if if more things come up, we will go there. Currently, we've only got four planned, but if there are people who want to reach out, if there are ideas, you know, bring them forward. Yeah. So they might not all appear succinctly, one after the other. We might end up doing one episode, doing something else, then one episode, then doing something else. Just saying that so viewers don't get too excited. Uh, viewers, listeners, anyway. Um, so, Callum is going to be playing interviewer today, and I'm going to be doing the talking. Lucky, lucky you. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, Craig, starting off, before we even get into the questions, mm-hmm. why do you think this is an important thing for us to do? Well, this is an important topic to cover, i.e. ableism, disabilism, and disability in general, because it's important that we have our podcast reflect many different areas of society and disability is just one area but it's one area that I live in constantly and it's one that I'm sure we have many listeners who might be disabled or have a disability as well and therefore we like to appeal to our listeners and get those ratings up. <laughs> that's a, that was a very capitalist model but I, I appreciate the last bit. Um, no that, that's fantastic Craig. So first of all I suppose we might as well start with my first first question for you since I'm I guess playing interviewer slash devil's advocate sure I was wondering what kind of the origins of your disability were Craig so what, what I mean by that is not the scientific origins I was more wondering kind of how you became disabled mm-hmm. so I was born with a disability mm-hmm. effectively I was born earlier than I should have mm-hmm. been my birthday I believe was supposed to be April okay. sometime I was actually born in February okay and I was born earlier because my mum experienced experienced preeclampsia. Okay. Basically, I was born via cesarean section and during that moment, during that time, my brain was starved of oxygen. Okay. I don't know how it was starved of oxygen, obviously because I have no recollection of being born, <laughs> but it was and it wasn't anybody's fault. Mm-hmm. It just happened. Sure. And when I was born, 
I actually was born with two collapsed lungs, okay. believe it or not. That didn't really contribute to my disability, mm-hmm. per se, but it was something that I was very, very poorly with okay. when I was first born. And I wasn't instantly diagnosed mm. with cerebral palsy. But um, when I was something around about two or three, uh, they apparently diagnosed me with cerebral palsy. When I say they, I mean the doctors and the physicians and all those people that are involved. However, from what I can remember, my mum did say that after you were born, um, they did apparently see signs of disability okay. within me when I was born. But obviously, they're not allowed to say when you first born because it wasn't tested yep. and cerebral palsy doesn't really present itself in children okay. until a certain age yeah. if I'm wrong on that and if there's any more experts out there please correct but from what I know this is my own knowledge and my own experience so it's usually diagnosed for around about two or three okay. I believe it or not I used to be able to stand up okay. independently like mum used to lean me against the washing machine mm-hmm. for example and I used to be like really stood very stiff Mm. with um, Perthy's hip. Now, as far as I understand Perthy's hip, I think it means that I was walking with a bit of a a sway, a bit of a sort of a kink in my hips, as it were. Um, That, however, has since disappeared, Mm. believe it or not, because I've not walked for some years and I have remained in the wheelchair. And basically, when I was about 10... The consultant physician basically said, yeah, I think his Perthes hips disappeared. Mm-hmm. But I've had many, many different experiences and many different surgeries. And I can always tell you about those. So, yeah, basically, cerebral palsy, how we can define it. It's, it's going to be a very, very simple definition. Cerebral palsy is a condition where part of the brain doesn't actually link up with the part of the body. Basically, there's a, there's a, there's no connection between the nerve in the brain and the nerve in the body. Sure. It's almost like it's a massive block, isn't it? Yeah. So to speak. So to speak. Um, there are different variations of cerebral palsy. We can have mild, which is what I've got, mm-hmm. quite thankfully, or they can be severe. Severe can range from anywhere around not being able to talk or not being able to move. Okay, it, really it varies from person to person. But I did go to school with somebody who had cerebral palsy and they wouldn't talk. Right. They, they used a talking machine okay. like Stephen Hawking, yeah, which was rather brilliant. No, absolutely. It sounds like there's a massive variety of, of, of obviously people, but also cases of the condition. And it's important that yeah. we acknowledge, well, one as a podcast, but also as, as people, that there is no two ways of the same. Mm. You know, each person experiences cerebral palsy differently, even though the symptoms may, may be similar. It will be an individual experience. Would that be would that be fair? Absolutely. I completely agree with your assessment of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody experiences cerebral palsy in a different manner, mm-hmm. so to say. And one of my former people that I worked with once asked me, is your disability life limiting? And I, as far as I know, it is not. Sure. There are times when I do think it might be life limiting mm-hmm. and it might be getting worse. I muscles might be tightening up a bit more because I was on medication as a child mm-hmm. for muscle relaxant and things like yeah. that. So yeah, I was on things like gabapentin, which is actually used as a mental health medication oh. for children these days, believe oh. it or not. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. That's very as a child, I had no, no I, idea. I didn't know that. It's really interesting. But I was on muscle relaxant 
laxants such as baclofen um, and things like that to and diazepam mm-hmm. to sort of relax my muscles yeah. because my muscles were very 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 tight mm-hmm. so I don't know like if you had met me before this conversation like if you'd met me like I don't know when I was like 10 or what no probably a bit younger probably about five or six I would always crawl everywhere right right um there would be like holes in my trousers Mm -hmm. constantly and holes in my shoes Mm -hmm. believe it or not soles absolutely perfect Mm -hmm. never used but there used to be holes in my um shoes and it used to drive me mad Mm -hmm. absolutely But, so I used to crawl everywhere. I used to kneel on the floor. I used to be able to sit on the floor and just watch television. Mm-hmm. But since I had surgery, um, they said, you won't kneel on the floor again. Mm-hmm. I have since kneeled on the floor, but I don't necessarily feel very comfortable kneeling on the yeah. floor, given that they've put, like, plates in my knees. Okay. Uh, it was called eight-plate surgery, which sort of shrunk the kneecap. Plates were put in into the bones in order to stop growth in the kneecap basically they that was done in order to try and straighten the the position of the leg um so they were just like two small eight plates oh that makes sense like figure of eight kind of thing was it was that in a an attempt if you don't mind me asking craig as somebody who is 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 able-bodied and i know i'm speaking from a place of privilege and a bit of confusion obviously I'm not in your situation. Sure. Was was that an attempt to try and make you walk? Was that an attempt to, what was it to make you more comfortable? It was or? an attempt to try and, should we say, get my legs straight. Okay. Because they used to be underneath me. Oh, okay. In the sense that my abductors used to be very tight at the back. Sure. Muscles at the back uh, used to be very tight, but also the muscles in my groin mm-hmm. used to be very tight. Mm-hmm. And I had to have them cut as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Dad could tell you many a tale of the time that my legs were in plaster mm-hmm. as a three- and four-year-old uh, with a pole between my legs. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, I managed to wriggle out of that mm-hmm. three times. Wow. So I don't know how the hell I've managed to managed to wriggle out of that, but props to little Craig for doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Little Craig was very <laughs> consistent and... But that that surgery was to sort of correct my Perthes hip. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't like it at all. No, I can only imagine it was very, I'm making it again, I'm making it I imagine it was quite yeah. traumatic for you as a child. Oh, yeah, massively. Uh, the amount of surgeries I've had over the years completely terrified me mm-hmm. of having any kind of surgery going yeah. forwards. I've got particular fear around anaesthesia mm-hmm. and doctors with needles. Mm-hmm. Any doctors and nurses listening to this, I do sincerely appreciate your efforts throughout this pandemic. I understand that you're miraculous and remarkable people. I appreciate you for what you do, but when you come at me with needles, no. Keep away from them needles. Sorry, that is it. That is where I draw the line. Is that your boundaries, Craig? It is. That's your boundaries. But, Having said that, I have been vaccinated, so from COVID, sure. obviously. So you're also a very selfless individual as well. Selfless? Yeah, because like if you think of it, you know, you're, you're nervous around needles, but you also get yourself vaccinated to help yourself and help other people. Oh yeah, of course, of course. It goes without saying, you know. Um, we weren't sponsored by the NHS to advertise or talk about vaccinations, but there you are, everybody. <laughs> there you have it. Go AstraZeneca. <laughs> Um, I, I, I suppose that leads me to my next question, Craig. We, we, you know, we kind of skeeted around we kind did. Of identity a little bit there. Right. I, I, suppose, I suppose no, no, at all. Would you say your disability has affected your identity at all, or how others perceive you as an identity? Oh, that's an interesting question because when I was at Chester, I started to learn about identity politics. Mm as an undergraduate sociology student. And that was super, super interesting. 
really think that second year module where we planned a sociology conference around identity um, and the various different areas of it was really key to me understanding identity as a form and it developed my it developed my ideas and my academic practices and interests going forwards because I actually wrote my undergrad dissertation on disability mm -hmm. and the body, gender and sexuality. Sure. I'm currently holding up my thesis there. It, um, take a picture of it for the, for the, for the page. Yeah, it is quite a short thesis mm -hmm. considering I've done a master's since. Sure. Um, however, there is lots and lots of information in here. But the premise of it is basically, I was looking at the division between the abled and the dis slash abled, because mm -hmm. I see there's a problem there. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just read a little bit from the thesis just to explain where where I was. I said that this dissertation will focus significantly on an area within sociology around interaction of the able-bodied and the disabled or the impaired. It will explore the liminal space which exists as a divide between the two groups, the word groups being the very reason for the necessity of the literature on the topic that must exist. And the separation can also be defined as a site of resistance. Book 1990. It will then be argued that those with disabilities and impairments are considered as others when compared with the normative counterparts mm -hmm. in arguably segregated spaces. And so the point for these spheres that I was talking about, the idea of the body, I positioned the body as a metaphorical canvas on which identity can be yeah. written or used to present, so to speak. Also, the notion of gender was, was assessed, and it was arguably a prevailed stance that the body is fluid and changeable. And following this, sexuality was examined. The dissertation also discussed how general society and the notions of social constructionism and ideology were in place with those with i.e., the body, gender, and sexuality. However, in relation to those who are disabled or impaired, it will examine how individuals are required to come into contact with the same ideas and the implications of this. Furthermore, I argued that this dissertation would discuss, through a number of secondary sources and narrative accounts, how these disabilities or impaired head identities are perceived as arguably marginalised and how disability and people with disabilities face an ostracization from their able-bodied counterparts in yeah. society. And some of the notable ideas I discussed basically included the nature of the self, the spheres that were discussed, gender, body, identity, disability, sexuality, and how they impacted, how they intersected, so to speak. So I really think that disability impact my identity. I really think it does mm -hmm. in some manner. Yes. Is that in case of how other people see you or how you see yourself? I <clears throat> think it's both. Oh, if you don't mind me, that's that an interesting bit. question. I would say I feel it is how others, i.e., society and the able-bodied community, perceive people with disabilities. There are such assumptions out around what a disabled body can or cannot do, mm. can and cannot feel, mm. and I was really at an undergraduate stage when I was writing my dissertation, I was invested in the idea of exploring that problem, mm. trying to find where the division was. How, if we're looking at the playing field, consider it as a table. You've got able-bodied on one side, disabled on the other. Where do they meet in the middle? Mm. And how 
do we get them to meet in the middle? Because as Mar Margaret Sheldrick argued, people who are able-bodied face an ontological anxiety around disability. Yeah. That is to say, they are afraid because they don't know what they don't know and therefore they automatically fear it. Yeah, I mean, humans notorious, if you know, they've always feared what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. That's true. One of the key issues, I think, not, again, I'm talking to someone who is able-bodied, is one, I think people when they see particular things like wheelchairs or zimmer frames or an item or a, a device that helps mobility, I think people automatically just place that as the person's identity, don't they? That's the start mm. as what as an outsider I observe. And also, I think the issue is in the name disability, isn't it? Particularly the dis, you know, you take the... You take yeah. the I think, is, is there a book by, is it, is it Goodley, Craig? Dan Goodley. Dan Goodley, who's, who spoke quite heavily on it, doesn't he? I think it's really important, to be honest, to consider the problem with the word disability. Because if we split it between the prefix dis mm -hmm. and the suffix ability, sure. we can then see where the problem is. Because the word disability, it seems to disengage mm -hmm. those who have a disability from society so to speak. I think it's really important, therefore, that we always do this slash ability, Absolutely. this being small and ability with a capital A. Yeah. Because then we're that. focusing on the idea of what one can do rather than what one mm. cannot. And I, I would say that that is a massive problem. Yeah. As somebody who is disabled, I don't like to be referred to as disabled. Yeah. I like to be referred to as somebody with a disability. Or Craig. Or quite simply Craig. <laughs> hey, Craig's great, isn't it? Yeah, you know. I, th I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, I mean, again, I've spoken, I've, you know, I've said, I said I'm an able-bodied person, but there is a, obviously an issue with the word disability and how it's, how, particularly how it's phrased. It is inherently ableist, isn't it? And it's able-bodied people who probably came yeah. up with the term as well. Interestingly, it is defined by... Barnes and Mercer 2011, as a disadvantage or restriction of activity caused by a contemporary social organisation which takes little or no account of people who have physical impairments and thus it excludes them from participation in mainstream social activities. Yeah. Um, I have met Colin Barnes, mm -hmm. believe it or not, at a conference in Lancaster mm -hmm. and he spoke remarkably. He actually i believe does have a disability himself not sure what kind of disability it was but it's like we have to point out here dear listener not all disabilities are visible we have true. to be very con concrete with that don't true we? very true just because you see disabled sign doesn't always mean that you have to be physically disabled and that comes back to you know you think about sort of apologize for coming in there but even then that goes back to the, the signs doesn't it you know you think it was always with a wheelchair wasn't it mm. but that excludes mental health and it also inherently says that all disabilities you have to be in if you have to be in something you have to be in a, a device or you have to be in something that enables your mobility yeah and can a person not come out with the wheelchair and still be disabled you know yes chronic pain for example or somebody who has chronic pain mm. or um, chronic fatigue syndrome, for mm. example, but that's a disability. You know? It is. But there's also, when you think about it, person in a wheelchair. Yeah. A wheelchair enables them. Absolutely. It doesn't really disable Absolutely. them. And that's an interesting point to raise. But while I'm on the topic of the disability symbol, it really annoys me how the disabled person in the symbol is static. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it seems like the person with a disability can't move. There are people with a disability that can't move, that struggle with moving their bodies. Yes. 
However, I find it restrictive in the sense that it presents the idea of disability as being a fixed thing. Yeah. A restriction. Yeah. We not all we might always live with disability, but may improve as age yeah. happens, or it might even get worse. Yeah. So I prefer, or I'm proposing right now, if anybody's listening out there, that we completely remove the disability sign yeah. and replace it with an active disability yeah. sign where the person is actively moving their wheelchair. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a sign out there, um, but I just know that predominantly they use the static disability sign. They do. I think what's interesting about those signs as well majority of those sites are filled up by the wheelchair, aren't they? There's a very small little individual in there, but the majority of it is the actual wheelchair. Yeah. Right, they're wrong. I mean, obviously, like you said, the, the, the wheelchair is an, an enabling thing, but also, I suppose what that's doing as well is it's devaluing the person that sits within the wheelchair, mm. which is something quite interesting, isn't it? I think, obviously, we spoke about assumptions. That, that was going to be my next question for you. But I, I suppose going off that quick as well, and I know we're going to flash this out a little bit on another, another interview, but I'm going to put it to you. There isn't, I want to get your opinion. Do you believe, because I do and I'm able-bodied, that there is a stigma attached to people with disability where they are unsexual, unsexualized? Yeah, 100%. I feel that society does not necessarily consider the idea of sex and disability mm-hmm. to go hand in hand. It's like they are polar opposites, i.e. sex and disability are not mutually exclusive mm-hmm. and therefore cannot happen. And it really, really annoys me and really frustrates me. Society in general puts the idea that sex and disability are completely separate entities Mm -hmm. and that they cannot be mutually exclusive, Mm -hmm. i.e. persons with a disability cannot have sexual feelings or cannot have romantic feelings Mm -hmm. or cannot or does not Mm -hmm. engage in sexual activity Mm. and therefore i suppose society really limits the idea of disability and classes them as being sexless Mm. almost to the point where they are asexual Mm. in the sense that they assume that that they don't have any interest in sex sure um and that annoys me slightly well it annoys me as well what one because obviously it's absolute part of my language there, listen, it's absolute bullshit. Mm-hmm. And two, as somebody who identifies as asexual, that's also really insulting to me as well, because that's saying that people who are asexual have to look or, or behave in a certain way, doesn't it? <laughs> Whereas, like myself, as we've discussed, I'm a six foot three able-bodied man, straight man, but I, I do identify as asexual. And I think there is something about the representations of one disability, but two, how that comes across as sexual to others. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it's nonsense, isn't it? It's complete mm-hmm. nonsense. I, I suppose it's something about as well, if you're disabled within within the wider society's eyes and in representation, you can't have a successful relationship throughout mm-hmm. your life. And please don't get us wrong that we do know that there probably are asexual disabled people out sure. there. And of course, that is absolutely, absolutely fine. Of course, absolutely. But... It's the boxing, isn't it? It's the boxing. That's the issue. One of my lecturers at uh, Chester famously said, the purpose of sociology is to remove the sides of the box Mm -hmm. and make connections between everything. And that applies hugely in society to every issue Mm. ever raised, really. I think people are not necessarily open-minded in the sense that they just think, oh, because they've got a disability, they can't have sex, they can't have yeah. certain feelings. When actually, people with disabilities are human and their disability doesn't always define them. Yeah. I.e., yes, they are a person with a disability, but 
they may also be a person with a sexuality or a sexual identity. And it really frustrates me how society tends to limit that projection of sexuality mm. across disabled bodies. No, I really hear that. I think it's well, it's something that needs speaking about more, isn't it? Very bluntly, and I think I think it's now time that we start changing these attitudes towards towards disabledism, sorry, disability and sex, mm. um, and that. Actually, these are people who live successfully in society and often produce families, live successful, healthy, long relationships as well, isn't it, Craig? Mm, it is. Um, obviously, obviously, now, this is kind of, kind of summing up part one, we're on the last bit, but do you want to talk to me about the last thing you wanted to say? Really? What, the main model of disability, mm-hmm. the old model of disability, okay. really, was the idea that it was a medical model. Okay. So disability was medicalised as a problem. The individual was the problem. The individual needs to change. Their body needs to change. And old society found that the individual is victimised and disempowered in that model of disability and that model of thinking. And information about individuals are used to categorise them. What we want to move forwards to, which... I do think it exists at the moment. This is not my idea. and uh, This is theory that works on social model mm-hmm. disability. But what I do think is there needs to be a more prominent move towards the social model of disability, i.e. that society and barriers are the problem around disability. Mm-hmm. Society needs to remove the barriers. Individuals can have power, control and autonomy. Individuals can share information about themselves and it's used to ensure inclusion and support of the individual rather than blatant categorization. But that's very powerful. I think it shows the very, without, without dragging too much people under the bus. I think it shows a very draconian attitude mm. um, towards disability, doesn't it? And it was only, what was it, 40 years ago, not even that, that we were still throwing people with disabilities in asylums or mm. in special specialised wards in hospitals. Yes. And, uh, you know, I remember speaking with a client years ago whose daughter had Down syndrome and she was forcibly removed from her and placed in an asylum. Mm. You know, so it's still, it's something that is still, well, it's very prominent, isn't it? And I think we need to, our attitude needs to change massively. I really do. And... I'm just going to throw out a little quote by Tom Shakespeare here. Yeah, go ahead. He says, The achievement of the disability movement has been to break the line between our bodies and our social situation. Sorry, to focus on the cause of the idea of disability, i.e. discrimination and prejudice. And that is why society is so disabling of people with disabilities or people with impairments and I think it needs to change yes it has changed in a way I've seen a lot of change throughout my life having been born in 1992 raised um up to 2021 there's been a lot of change but there's still a long long way to go yeah it's not enough is it yeah no barriers have been smashed yes absolutely but there's still huge hurdles Absolutely, um, there are. And I think you know. I think that that kind of draws a good conclusion to the the first episode of this, and we'll we'll get on to the second part of your interview and uh, fight this even more. Yes, fantastic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.